Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Corey Hofstein, who is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Newfound Research. Corey, welcome. Alex, thank you for having me. A little odd for me to be on this side of the podcast. I'm used to hosting my own. Well, it's a change. It's a, you know, change is always good for everyone. Let's kick off with your background and finance. You know, you've done some really interesting research, but I wanted to go back and, and look at your trajectory to become, you know, a, a real leader in the research of liquidity. Well, I had actually no intention of ever working in finance as, as a young man. I was fortunate to get early into sort of the realm of computer science and programming. I consider myself a, a middle millennial, sort of a super Nintendo millennial, if that makes sense for those in, in my generation. And I always actually thought I'd program video games. And I taught myself how to do that all throughout middle school and high school. And I got into university ready to study computer science and looked at my peers and said, these really aren't the people I want to spend the rest of my life with. And so I just quickly started searching for other interests and landed on finance. And and through sort of some good luck and uh, family connections, I, I worked with my father's financial advisor who introduced me to some local asset managers. I was able to get an internship where I worked very closely with a discretionary portfolio manager to basically combine the way he viewed stock selection with my ability to automate it and systematize it. And that was really sort of what kicked off my interest in quantitative investing. We'll have to fast forward 12 years to talk about how I got into the whole scene of of liquidity. And that was really birthed out of the 2020 COVID crisis. Most of my career over the last decade has been as a trend follower, a systematic trend follower. And as I was managing capital throughout the March 2020 crisis, one of the things that became very apparent to me was that this grand exogenous shock that was COVID was leading to endogenous market issues, structural problems within markets that were forcing the market to behave in such a way that really was no longer tied to fundamentals or what was going on economically, but rather was sort of these pro-cyclical feedback mechanisms. And so after sort of the dust settled, I took a step back and said, you know, I think I'm playing a game now where the world has changed and I'm not aware of what these changes are. And I need to sort of dive in and, and do the homework and do the research and figure out what part, what pieces of the puzzle am I really missing? Is there anything that you could take from your you know, work as potentially a, a, a programmer of video games in terms of the endogenous effects that happen? And you need to think about the environment, how it impacts the player, how the player impacts the environment. Is there anything that you've taken away from that mindset that's now helped you understand the way markets work? I, I think that's an amazing way to think about it. One that actually hasn't been put forward to me, but- there are games in which the world is not dynamic, right? It's you can have input as a player and the world doesn't change around you. When you go back and play Mario, the level's the same every time you play it. 
that's not true in modern games necessarily, where they have these big branching storylines where things that you do at the very beginning can have profound impacts on what happens in the end of the game. Um, I actually don't really play video games anymore, but I keep up to date with sort of how, how these things uh, operate. And I think as a systematic investor, one of the things that we often think about is I'm too small to have an impact. I want to follow my rules-based process. I want to avoid having any emotional input into the market. And I'm sort of assuming that the way I've modeled the world is going to remain status quo. The problem becomes what happens if everyone operates under that same assumption? Markets are by definition reactive. And so if everyone begins operating under the assumption of status quo and modeling status quo, and they're going to have a very programmatic, systematic response, well, what that ultimately ends up potentially creating is a situation where you can trigger all these truly systematic responses and cause a sort of market event that is certainly outside of what was the status quo. It's really fascinating because ultimately when you're with the crowd, it's great and, and you can all move in the same direction until one person decides to look the other way and you now start to see this cascade of people changing their view and, and the market then can react very violently. Yeah. And one of the pieces that really stuck out for me when I was doing this research around these, what I call liquidity cascades, was that there really wasn't necessarily one group of market participants that were truly responsible for what was happening. There's often these boogeymen that are put forth. You hear in financial media, oh, it's the risk parity funds, or oh, the pension funds are rebalancing, or the systematic hedge funds are having trouble. One of the things that became apparent to me was there really was this ecosystem that sort of emerged very slowly over the last 10 or 20 years. And there's a large number of players that are all feeding into each other. So as I started doing this research, one of the big narratives that came out was, well, all the markets are now manipulated by central banks. That when there's a central bank put in place, that when we know central banks are going to step in, it's going to cause investors to behave in an irresponsible, over-levered manner. Well, that's one narrative. There is another narrative that's gotten more and more popular around the growing role of passive investing as a destabilizing force in markets. Well, perhaps that's one piece. There's another argument about how modern markets now operate under the purview of high-frequency traders. You know, No longer are markets traded with human-to-human -human contact in pits where reputation is on the line. You now have maybe five meaningful market makers in the U.S. who can all sort of anonymously flip off the switches when markets go haywire. And then you have this other group of new strategies that have emerged post-2008 as a response to the 2008 crisis that operate in a highly systematic manner that are, in effect, trying to protect capital during high volatility events or drawdown events. And these are things like CTA strategies or target volatility strategies. And we can go into all the definitions of these. And they're going to have a very pro-cyclical response when volatility spikes. And what's perhaps the most important takeaway of my research is I don't believe 
any of these individual narratives is sufficient to create the type of violent sell-off we saw in March 2020 and subsequent rebound, I think they're all acting in concert and in fact feeding into each other in a very pro-cyclical way that is causing these types of market meltdowns and has the risk of continuing to cause them going forward. It's that continuing piece of of continuing issues that that are there that I really start to concern myself with because we have seen a massive aggregation of capital, both in asset owners and asset managers. So the amount of really large players is still very important. Yes, we've got the the Wall Street bet crowds that can move markets and on particular stocks, but it's the full broader market that we now need to consider. And I've got a concern that there's just not the active players anymore that are out there. And you've only got these really massive uh, aggregators of capital that are that are moving the market. Well, you have massive aggregators of capital who have been pushed into riskier and riskier assets over the last 20 years. So consider, for example, here in the United States, we have large pension funds and endowments that have long-dated liabilities, 20 or 30 years out, and they're operating under a discount rate that's going to be, call it 7.5% that they need to meet. Well, back in the mid-90s, you could just buy U.S. treasuries. You could have 100% U.S. treasuries and you would hit that discount rate. And it was very easy to keep a funded status. Sort of mid-2000s, you probably needed something that was like 50% equities and 50% bonds. 2015, you needed something that looked more like 90% equities, 10% bonds. And that 90% equities wasn't even just public equities anymore. It was going to be private equities. It was going to be private credit, all sorts of illiquid instruments that potentially starts to put more pressure on the liquid part of the balance sheet when there's a crisis. And then if you take it to the private side, what are individual investors doing? Well, When central banks lower the discount rate and we see government bonds decline in their yield, savings rates or savings accounts, the yield offered in savings accounts dramatically drops. I'll just, anecdotes aren't data, but I'll speak anecdotally. I don't have a single friend that has a savings account in a bank anymore. They use their 401k as a savings vehicle, their retirement accounts here in the US, right? Well, so now all of a sudden consumers are using the market And mostly because they're younger, they have riskier assets in those funds that they're allocating to. They're using risky assets as a savings vehicle, which is probably fine when retirement is 30 or 40 years out. But when you consider that they're going to have a response when the market sells off and they see their wealth get cut in half, their spending response is going to have a very real knock-on impact into the real economy. What you create is a tighter and tighter link between the real economy and the financial economy. And so there's this very sort of profound impact that begins to occur through some of this central bank policy, but has occurred at a very slow incremental stage over the last 20 years that can't be undone in the next week, in the next six months, maybe even in the next five years. That's a real uh, challenging point, I think, for a lot of people to think about is that there's 401ks or their pension is now a de facto savings vehicle 
And so the central banks will ultimately have to protect that because if people's perception of wealth uh, is going to be based on their 401k or it's been often, you know, previously uh, it's been perceived as their house, uh, particularly in the Australian marketplace, as their house price has been going up, it's given people comfort to spend. They feel this wealth effect that's growing and they, they choose to spend. Now you've seen a situation where it's the stock market that is their wealth effect and that's got a direct impact on the economy. So if you think about it, developed uh, economies are probably more at risk of this financialization that's going on than some of the developing emerging markets where people don't have this uh, attachment to the financial markets. And if their financial markets shut down or, or, or really sell off, it doesn't really make such, such a difference as opposed to the developed economies where everyone's so closely entwined that the perception of wealth is, is connected. I think there's um, some other sort of interesting potential knock-on effects of, and I love that word you used, financialization of the financialization of savings itself. Not only that wealth effect that knocks on into the real economy, but the actual impact on the financial economy itself. So one of the things we've seen here in the US is that the target date fund market. So sort of the the traditionally here, the default uh, investment that you would be placed in in a 401k would be a fund that is a target date fund in the date assigned to it is your sort of target retirement date. And it's going to follow a glide path. So when you're younger, it's going to be more aggressive, more stocks, less bonds, and over time move towards more bonds, less stocks. And in the early 2000s, there was less than $10 billion in these types of strategies. There is now closer to $3 trillion, right? And in 20 years, this has happened and largely been applauded as a wonderful innovation. But what we're starting to see is that as more and more people put their savings wealth into autopilot with these strategies, these strategies are then having knock-on implications into how financial markets work. So there's a great paper that got published actually last fall. It's, um, it's a Na- National Bureau of Economic Research working paper, October 2020. I could get you the title if you want it. And there was a couple of key things that came out of it. One was that after high equity returns, one of the things you saw was that funds with a larger proportion of target date fund ownership, so funds that were owned within target date funds, saw a disproportionate amount of outflow. Largely because target date funds, when equities were doing really well, would have to sort of sell off their equities to rebalance the fund. Well, one of the things that has done is it's actually created knock-on effects into stocks that are owned by those funds do disproportionately more poorly after the market runs up versus stocks that aren't included. So because of this systematic rebalancing pressure, you're now seeing, because again, this has nothing to do with any sort of market fundamentals. This is just, hey, you got out of the band. We need to sell off some equities and we own a particular set of funds, the stocks owned by those funds then go on to do more poorly because target date funds are systematically selling them down. I think the paper that you were talking about is Retail Financial Innovation and Stock Market Dynamics, the case for target date funds. Is that the one? I hope you don't blame me for not remembering that title. But (laughs) No, it's it's that is the one. Yes, that is. That is the one. Yep. So what you have, right? And I think this is really important, is a very slow trend over the last 20 years that has been largely applauded by regulators as a great innovation to protect retail consumers is now having 
an impact on the underlying market. By financializing savings, you all of a sudden have changed market structure. So another thing that has occurred is prior to target date funds becoming really large in the United States, equity markets tended to trend more. Post sort of 2010, they started exhibiting a lot more mean reversion. There's a couple of reasons why that may be, but one argument is that, well, target date funds are effectively systematizing mean reversion. Every time the market goes up versus bonds, they want to sell a little and buy the bonds. And every time markets go down, they're going to want to sell bonds and buy equities. And that's going to have a structural mean reversionary impact on the market as a whole. Sort of the last point I'll make here, and then I'll I'll shut up and, and let you ask a thoughtful question, is that you know, I think when you have within the equity sleeve, a lot of these funds are allocated passively. And people would say, if you believe markets are efficient, that is the efficient way to allocate. And, and maybe, you know, we're missing some slices of the equity market. I think what's really important to recognize is that this is not macro efficient. That if the volatility that's exhibited by stocks, market fluctuation, about 50% of it is driven by permanent changes in dividends, right? That cash flow element related to stocks, what it, this ultimately means is that these fixed glide paths embedded in the target date funds are ultimately trading against these fundamental changes. That there are fundamental changes that are occurring that say the amount of stocks and bonds you should own from a fundamental perspective has changed, but because we've arbitrarily decided from a life cycle perspective, you should own more stocks at the beginning and less stocks at the end, regardless of underlying fundamentals, we end up with a huge portion of capital, $3 trillion here in the US that is now trading against market fundamentals. It's crazy because now I think about it, well, hold on, how can you potentially swim against this this, this tide, right? Do you, do you try and uh, front run ultimately what you know is coming or do you just swim with the rest of them because you know the money's going into particular asset classes, you know it's going in there, you'll be supported. So there are certain people who have argued that this is an exploitable effect. I think it probably was more exploitable in the past, even though the assets were lower when the funds rebalanced on a more scheduled basis. And you do sort of hear about it still, oh, it's quarter-end rebalance. You're going to get a lot of the pensions, a lot of the endowments, a lot of the target date funds rebalancing. There is sort of an expected impact from that when you basically start at the beginning of every quarter with a 60-40 of global stocks and global bonds, and you just track it throughout the quarter. And at the end of the quarter, you say, all right, it's 65-35. We know they have to sell you know, X amount of capital and stocks to buy back bonds that should have some sort of cash flow impact. It's not always that easy because a lot of funds have caught on that what they really need to do is use capital inflow throughout the quarter to keep trying to rebalance back to where they were. So it's really only in like very strong market movements, things like perhaps March 2020, that they're constantly hitting a rebalance band that they're having to try to reverse course. With so many people almost programmatically uh, trading, is that now going to start off You know these other sorts of volatility style spikes, the meme stock mania that we've got? Because everyone's doing one thing, their, their program's telling them to do this, but then it, the system can't deal with these large shocks, You know, with, with, for example, these gamma squeezes that we've seen in some of the meme stocks. And so you have these huge explosions in prices because the vast majority of people are just 
doing what their program tells them to do. The model says this and they go about it and then it kind of deal with some exogenous shock to the system that's uh, going to impact them. I think there are some slow moving programmatic strategies that really can't be changed or won't be changed for, I'll call them political reasons. I don't mean that in the sense of the grand politics that are happening at government, but internal politics within companies. So one perfect example is I was on Bloomberg, I don't know, probably six months ago talking about meme stocks. And I said, the real nightmare that will occur is when people realize that you can short squeeze and gamma squeeze meme stocks right before index reconstitution and squeeze them into a passive index that those index investors then become the bag holder. So if you find a small cap stock that is got a large short interest and has options and you can pile into all those options and cause a gamma squeeze and cause a short squeeze right before index reconstitution, you can then force, you know, make it turn it into a large cap stock. You can then force all the large cap indices and therefore all the passive ETFs and mutual funds that track them and separately managed accounts to become a buyer of that stock. And all of that newfound buying pressure should, in theory, help keep the stock price up and allow you to exit. They ultimately become the bag holder. And I think there's a lot of people that would argue that Tesla, actually Elon Musk, took advantage of this. He effectively memed his own stock into the S&P. And I think this has profound implications for operators. If you want your stock to do well, understanding the systematic rules of how ETFs operate and how they're screening for stock selection on balance sheet characteristics, I think is going to have very important implications that you could actually manipulate some of that to work your way into certain indices. That's fascinating because how do you then think about it as a large allocator? You know, what what do you then do? Well, I can only tell you what we've done. And what we have done is said, I think some of these structural changes are permanent. I don't see target date funds going away. Another big one that grew out of the 2008 crisis here in the US was that a lot of insurance companies who were offering variable annuity products to clients, regulators came in and said, hey, this is a balance sheet risk for you. This can't, this, you need a way to de-risk this. And clients were also demanding that as well. So they came up with the idea of target volatility strategies. So these are strategies that say, for example, I'm going to buy the S&P 500 and I want a constant volatility of, say, 7.5%. If the market starts exhibiting more than 7.5% volatility, I'm going to buffer in some cash. And if the market's below, I might actually use a little bit of leverage, but I want to target that 7.5% as closely as possible. Well, these took off in popularity. You saw post-2008 CTAs sort of manage futures trend following strategies take off as a sort of alternative that could be protective to a client account. All of these types of strategies are different, but they're correlated in what they do in a crisis. They all systematically sell and cause more chaos. One of the things that we do very proactively is model the positioning of all these players as best we can. And we try to say, where, how are they positioned? Are they all levered up at the same time? Well, if that's the case, then it's very likely that any sort of exogenous shock could cause a very violent unwind. And we might want to be a bit more defensive in that environment versus 
right at the bottom of March 2020, every target volatility fund was the most delevered it had ever been. CTAs were largely short equities to an extreme, but because equity volatility was so high, they actually had reduced their position. Risk parity funds had largely delevered. Long short hedge funds were forced to degross. And they had all delevered to such a point that the risk was actually to the upside, that they were all going to become systematic buyers if the market sort of paused at all. And that's exactly what you saw, particularly with central bank intervention. And so for us, I think as an allocator, we have to recognize these players aren't going anywhere. They command an incredible amount of capital. And on any given day, this, the impact that they can have is really meaningful. And so we need to be aware of how they're positioned if we want to react to it. Now, there may be investors out there who say, I've got a 50-year horizon. I really don't care. But for those of us who are trying to navigate the sort of week-to-week, month-to-month, I think those players cannot be ignored anymore. So how do you then go about it? Are you, are you looking to somewhat capture these volatility spikes that pop up? Are you looking to find parts of the market that aren't so influenced by the programmatic trading, maybe outside the indexes, uh, you know, that where you feel that there's some sort of opportunity from alpha? How do you think about it? So the way we've repositioned and restructured the strategy that we run is we've effectively built a barbell. Our belief fundamentally is that markets will continue to exhibit extremes with greater frequency. And that actually plays out in the data. If you start to look at market returns and try to measure how fat-tailed they are, right? How, how frequently are we seeing these really extreme moves, both to the upside and the downside? That number, that statistical number, has continued to climb over the last 20 years. And so if we're going to continue to see more bouts of extreme stability and then extreme instability, what we're effectively trying to build in our portfolio is half the portfolio that's a ladder of increasingly aggressive positions that should do well in increasingly bullish markets, and then half the portfolio of increasingly bearish positions that should do increasingly well in a bearish market. So practically speaking, we sort of have an equity core and half of it is put in momentum stocks and half of it is put in really high quality, strong balance sheet, low volatility name stocks, very defensive stocks. And then sort of the next piece of the portfolio as we work our way out the ladder is a trend following component that says when markets are in uptrends, we want to buy because we think there's going to be continued buying pressure. And when markets are in downtrends, we want to de-risk and because we think there's going to be continued selling pressure. And then the final piece, sort of as we get to further extremes, is for the bullish markets, we're buying out of the money call options. Sort of, for lack of a better phrase, a little bit of a lottery ticket, but we think they're underpriced because we think there's more upside risk than, than people are pricing in. And for the downside, we're buying out of the money put options. And one of the things we do that's, I think, really important and aligned with our thesis is we do what's called a constant premium spend. So instead of saying, I always want enough put options to protect my portfolio, we're making the bet that when put options are very expensive, when implied vol is high or, or skew is really steep, um, that it's hard for the market to melt down because players are already protected. And so we're actually not going to spend you know, enough to protect our portfolio. We're just going to consistently spend a certain amount of money every month. And that notional value of protection is going to change. 
it's sort of like saying like our view is when you've had a very wet month, you don't need to buy as much fire insurance on your house versus a dry month. Similar on, on the call side. And so what it means is in like the current market environment for the last six months, because skew has been so steep and puts have been so much more expensive than calls, we end up buying far more calls than puts. And so we're asymmetrically in our portfolio tilted in a very bullish manner. It's fascinating because when you think about what you learn uh, at university, when you do a CFA, for example, and you start to think about modern portfolio theory and different building blocks from an SAA perspective, uh, what you're doing is totally uh, really different to that. And uh, it's quite interesting because ultimately you've now got a system where the market is so highly correlated that these supposed buckets that we've been using historically as the building blocks to a portfolio just don't work in, in crises. And so you've now had to really transform the way you think of a portfolio. Yeah, I think what we're finding increasingly is that leverage and liquidity ultimately end up being the driving core factors of the entire market. The way I sort of talked about it in my liquidity cascades piece was by recognizing that all of these markets are not independent of each other. When we think of VIX futures, for example, we need to recognize that they're tied to the VIX, which is derived from S&P 500 options, which are largely priced on dealers being able to hedge those options with the S&P 500. So you have this flow through where equity markets and, and the S&P 500 truly as a vehicle, a global vehicle, becomes the ultimate sort of provider of liquidity and governs the ability for sort of the rest of the arbitrage link to work. And when that liquidity breaks down in the S&P 500, things get wild everywhere in markets. And so I think a lot of these strategies that we're looking for as diversifiers ultimately fall apart when any part of them ties back to the S&P sort of in in its ability to hedge a core aspect of it or you know govern the volatility of it. And so for me it's if we think markets are going to get more extreme we think embedded convexity in the portfolio becomes a really important component. If there's greater fat tails, you know, if we're no longer just talking about the mean return and the standard deviation in the first two moments of the distribution we're now talking about skew and kurtosis, the third and fourth moments of the return distribution. We need to start to incorporate elements that are not just having a linear response to what's happening in markets, but are having an asymmetric response that call options can go way up as markets are bullish, but only lose that fixed premium when they're bearish. And conversely, with put options. And, and you have to be very thoughtful about how you do it. You can't just like randomly throw these in your portfolio. But I think they're incredibly important instruments to be thinking about going forward. We've got to um, let the audience know that we will put the uh, paper in the uh, show notes, the Liquidity Cascades paper. But I've got to also ask you the question, you've used a picture on the front of that uh, paper from Escher. Uh, what was the reason for using Escher's uh, picture on, on the front of that white paper? I will give you my thought out answer and then I'll, I'll give you my truthful answer. So the thought out answer is the entire idea of the liquidity cascades is that we, we've constructed this loop that central banks stepping in sort of creates this uh, impetus among investors to take more risk. In taking more risk, they're adopting these volatility targeting strategies. 
These volatility targeting strategies have a very pro-cyclical effect that can decrease volatility and push markets higher. An exogenous event then causes them to all become systematic sellers, and then central banks have to step back in. And so you get this sort of like odd self-fulfilling loop. And that was sort of why I used the MC Escher picture, that waterfall that was sort of self-filling. The true answer is because no one wants to read a paper that doesn't have some pretty pictures on it. And I thought that picture would be appealing. Oh, well, Corey Hofstein, that's been a fantastic uh, conversation. Thank you very much for your time today. Alex, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.